Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Benjamin Ashwell from the podcast Talking History, The Italian Unification, which I host with my brother. Zach Twomley's When Diplomacy Fails is one of the shows that inspired me to begin podcasting, so I'm very excited to be introducing it. When Diplomacy Fails is a rare gem of a show that combines a love of history, a huge breadth of topics, and solid scholarly research. It's essential listening for anyone who wants to understand European history, especially in the 18th and 19th centuries. So, let's all sit back and enjoy this long-awaited installment on the Thirty Years' War. Who does not know that kings and rulers sprang from men who were ignorant of God, who assumed, because of blind greed and intolerable presumption, to make themselves master of other men, their equals, by means of pride, violence, bad faith, murder, and almost every other kind of crime? Surely, the devil drove them on. Pope Gregory VII It did not take long for Frederick to realise that he was all alone. His allies had melted away, and the whole reason he had expected success in the first place, i.e. because of his familial ties to the Netherlands, Denmark and England, never materialised. When the year 1620 began, Frederick was by no means defeated. He still held Bohemia and his Palatine lands remained safe, for now. But Frederick must have been at least aware that while his allies remained unwilling or unable to help him, Ferdinand's allies had mobilised and were marching from both Bavaria and Spain. The Protestant Union, which Frederick was supposed to be the head of, renewed its defensive alliance with England's James I. James I is quite an interesting character for the period. Since his daughter Elizabeth was married to Frederick, and the marriage was both a happy and fruitful one, James now had a son-in-law ruling the Palatine. Brennan Purcell, in his book The Winter King, outlines this campaign of pressure, which Freddie sought to mount against James. Quote, Frederick had invited James, with an indirect plea, to take an active, military, defensive stance. Frederick had declared that if the House of Austria persisted in spreading violence throughout the Empire, he was sure that the King would not abandon him in his time of need. End quote. This is merely a taster of what's to come between the two rulers because as active as the English Palatine Postal Service was at this stage, it would only increase in activity as the years progressed, particularly once Frederick accepted the Bohemian crown. But James was not wholly interested in Freddie's schemes. He seemed far more prone to negotiation with the rest of Europe. 
As far as he was concerned, after having established a Protestant marriage between Frederick and Liz, it was only right to balance this out by establishing its Catholic counterpart and seeking out a marriage with Spain. James I, according to the historical consensus, and Purcell, quote, wanted an alliance, not a war, with Spain. Shortly after his ascension to the throne, he had formally ended the long Elizabethan conflict against Spain with the Treaty of London in 1604. The available grounds for conflict had retracted further when in 1609 the Dutch, allied to England, had signed the Twelve Years' Truce with Spain. Soon after the Treaty of London, discussions began over a possible Anglo-Spanish marriage between Prince Henry and a Spanish princess which, it was hoped, would bring the two crowns close together and reduce the confessional antagonism between them and within the British Isles. End quote. This arrangement would not bear fruit between Spain and England, and Spain busied itself with the affairs of its family members, the Austrian Habsburgs. Despite the fact that their cousins were embroiled in a Bohemian war though, Spain's Habsburgs were not jumping at the chance to get involved. Philip III of Spain would have preferred to have seen the Emperor Matthias mediate the rebels' grievances, but it became clear that simply listening to their plight would not be sufficient to satiate their fears, since they had heard promises from the mouth of a Habsburg before. Thus, Philip determined to send money and materials to the HRE starting on October 1618, just as the rebellion was reaching its high point. The Spanish got a shock once they saw how poorly the imperial forces fared against the bohemian rabble, causing Count Onate, the same Onate behind the Onate Treaty, which had recreated a common understanding and mutual interests between the two family lines in 1617, to communicate to his King Philip III, It seems to be necessary for your majesty to consider which will be of greater service to you, the loss of these provinces, or the dispatch of an army of 15 to 20,000 men to settle the matter. So, on the 3rd of February 1619, Philip made the important decision to send troops from the Netherlands and Italy towards the Habsburg command. The Spanish involvement here, though not exactly unexpected and quite understandable given the circumstances of the time, was set in motion a series of events that ensured Bohemia was not the last stop, but was merely the beginning of a wider conflict. The Dutch had been reluctant to invest heavily in the Bohemian cause. Though certainly sympathetic, the Dutch simply did not believe the rebellion was viable. Remember from last time, we examined how David Milland noted that the Dutch were very much involved, that they signed an alliance with the Bohemians and the Palatine and granted large subsidies, that they threatened war upon whoever intervened in Bohemia, such as the Catholic League, that view from Milan still fascinates me greatly, though I may have to dispute its credibility, there is no doubt that the act of Spanish involvement in the Bohemian and then the Palatine issue sent alarm bells ringing in The Hague, because there was just no way that the Dutch could allow the Spanish to gain a strong strategic foothold in the region. Especially since the Spanish, their rival for the last 60 years, was expected to resume hostilities once the 12-year truce expired in 1621. Ferdinand, in his desperation, had been forced to rely on Maximilian of Bavaria, who promised to lend his considerable financial resources to aid Ferdinand's economic plight, while his leadership of the Catholic League made him especially valuable as an ally to the Habsburgs in general. Philip III of Spain, on the other hand, was highly concerned that the war would spill over into the rest of Europe, and that a general war would be on his hands, which he was not at all in a position to fight. Well aware of Spain's economic shortcomings and its need to reform, Philip would have hoped that the war in Bohemia could remain a localised affair, and he recognised that to keep the rest of Europe quiet, he would have to conduct an unheard of level of tiptoeing around his potential enemies, rather than simply stamping on them. He wrote to Duke Albert of the Spanish Netherlands, The invasion of the Palatine will give the English a fair pretext for openly interfering in Germany and for sending all their forces to the assistance of the Dutch. You will then be attacked by the combined forces of England and Holland, and then, if we are to take part in the Bohemian War, we shall be at the expense of maintaining two armies, and we shall have to fight with England, though a war with that power has always been held by us to be most impolitique. Its inconvenience at this time will be especially great on account of our poverty. 
In reality, though, Spanish diplomacy had triumphed in keeping James from aiding his son-in-law, even while the latter's lands were due to be invaded by the Spanish. Specifically, the Spanish ambassador to England, Count Gondomar, had steered James away from war by reviving the idea of an Anglo-Spanish marriage. Gondomar gave assurances to James that the members of the Protestant Union had nothing to fear from Spain. Though James was so torn between preventing Frederick's loss of inheritance once the Spanish overran his electorate, and also abhorring his decision to accept the crown of the rebellion in the first place, that he was close to his wit's end. And England wasn't the only power interested in the Bohemian affair, or the promise of a ceasefire, which James repeatedly offered to mediate, to the delight of Philip and chagrin of Ferdinand. Louis XIII of France also sent his trusty diplomat, the Duke of Angoulême, to Ulm, where the Catholic League and Protestant Union forces were sizing each other up. When he arrived, he made a crucial agreement between the two camps that enabled future Habsburg successes and virtually guaranteed Freddy's fall. The Treaty of Ulm, organised by Angoulême, was essentially a declaration by both sides of their wish to not fight each other, and it is highly significant because it provided the Protestant Union with a get-out-free clause. It meant that the two sides could do whatever they wished, as long as that didn't bring them into direct conflict. G. Pages, in his book The Thirty Years' War, 1618-1648, noted an interesting aspect about the treaty. Quote, Both leagues promised not to take any action against each other in the future which might harm the other in any way or in any pretext whatsoever, and to withdraw their troops simultaneously. There was no more to it except for a small clause, Article 3, under which Bohemia was not included in the agreement. This left the Union princes free to go to Frederick's aid, but they were much more concerned to defend the Palatine against the Spaniards who were starting to move into it, and who were not affected by the treaty either, since they had made no alliance with the League. In the long run, then, the Treaty of Ulm allowed the Catholic League to help the Emperor in Bohemia, and to some extent neutralise South Germany without closing the Palatine to Spaniola. End quote. The Duke of Angoulême saw the Treaty of Ulm on the 3rd of July 1620 as the first step towards peace in the Empire. The next step, he believed, was to get Frederick and Ferdinand to agree to a similar plan. But Angoulême was not successful when he arrived in Vienna to facilitate this, with the result that the Catholic League now moved to Upper Austria, where it could freely crush the Protestant rebellion there, and then moved to Bohemia. The Protestant Union, however, enjoyed no such similar military successes. It was faced with the prospect of facing down Ambrosio Spagnola's crack troops from the Army of the Netherlands, even while the majority of its members dragged their heels. Crucially for Frederick, the fact that the two camps pledged to remain at peace with one another meant that he was on his own. While the Catholic League tore Bohemia's allies, Bohemia felt the pressure and would surely have recognised the very difficult truths that their diplomacy had failed their allies had gone, and they were now virtually all alone. It's easy to present 1620 as the year that is an inevitable march towards doom for Frederick, but I can't help but feeling there's so much more to the story. And there is. Though Freddy came from the Palatine, he didn't present his accession as a Palatine takeover, and he didn't try to hoard all the power in the kingdom for himself. Freddy instead allowed the Bohemians to retain their offices, and when the Bohemian Assembly transferred the powers of the directors, who assumed leadership of the rebellion, to him, he didn't try to give any privileged positions to his palatine mates. As you may already be aware, Freddy's greatest problem was not how power-hungry his allies were, it was that he didn't have enough allies in the first place. Though he would attribute his successes to God and call upon his strength regularly, he never seems to have imposed his beliefs upon the populace at least from what I can tell. An ugly incident did occur, though, when the Catholic Church of St. Vitus was replaced with a Calvinist equivalent, but since this was the royal place of worship, such a change would only make sense. Iconoclastic riots, similar to those experienced during the Reformation, were thankfully prohibited by Frederick, and he made it clear from the outset that his tolerance would speak for itself. Remember, Bohemia was the birthplace of the Letter of Majesty, 
and Frederick was at pains to prove that he himself was more than willing to uphold its contents. In a published speech he declared, That we, also by such government, have been strongly moved to oppress and molest no one on account of their religion. If they show themselves peaceful and irreproachable, first to the constitutions of the kingdom and of the incorporated lands, and, more importantly, in compliance with the letter of majesty granted on account of religion, or to have no one prevented in their customary religious practices. In many cases, where his advisers did recommend coming down harshly on the Catholic clergy in Bohemia, Frederick found he simply didn't have the resources, even if he had wanted to, to first rid the country of them and then deal with a potential civic backlash. Frederick also made an effort to justify his taking the crown to the courts of Europe, and diplomacy was really the part that he seems to have invested the most of his resources in, aside from defence of course. Brennan Purcell explains that, quote, Frederick had a formal explanation of his actions sent to Venice, Savoy, the Elector of Saxony, the King of Poland and other potentates within and beyond the Empire. The letter sought to shift the blame for the current state of affairs onto Jesuit extremism. If there was to be a general war of religion, Frederick did not want the courts of Europe to blame him for it. In the letter, he explained how the Bohemian Protestant estates had been forced to take up arms to defend the letter of majesty and their constitutional freedoms and privileges. He wanted all to know that he only wanted peace and not a war of any sort. Frederick also sent Maximilian a similar letter, asking specifically for his neutrality in the ensuing months. End quote. What Frederick would soon be made aware of, though, through captured correspondence between them, was that Maximilian and Ferdinand were such good mates that they had already negotiated a sweet little deal that would directly affect him and his electorate. At best, it was highly unconstitutional, but Ferdy was desperate and had turned to the richest and most influential man in the empire, the Duke of Bavaria. Max and Ferdy had met in Munich in October 1619, and while there the two had struck a deal which illustrated in the plainest terms just how dependent on Max Ferdinand was. Max was to be given leadership of the Catholic League if he would raise an army off his own pocket and send it to defend the Habsburg interest. In exchange, Ferdinand would let Max occupy Upper Austria as a form of payment until he could pay him back. But there was more. Ferdinand promised Max that if Max supported his plans to issue the imperial ban against Frederick, then Max could have Freddy's palatinate and his electoral title. Meanwhile, Frederick embarked on his imperial progress, using it as a means to present his new rule in a positive and serious light. He spent heavily on the occasion, which essentially involved a tour of Bohemia and its towns. He was received mostly favourably, and had to give the impression all the while that his kingdom was here to stay, which is not easy to do while Polish Cossacks are invading your lands, a development which the Polish king Sigismund could blame on his restless troops though Frederick would surely have suspected that it had more to do with Sigismund's brother-in-law Ferdinand's pressure than disobedient cavalry. However troubling the sly Polish intervention was for Freddy, he was likely more concerned by the Bohemian estates, or regional assemblies' lack of solid commitment to his cause. Brennan Purcell notes that, quote, The estates and the incorporated lands had shown their willingness to render him homage and gifts, but not more. The estates' desire to confirm and increase their own privileges was greater than their willingness to sacrifice for their king their requested amount of financial and military assistance. This resistance can be attributed to the political immaturity of the estates, whose members believed that they could endorse the new monarch's regime and sidestep the war in its defence without suffering dire consequences. End quote. Though the omens were not necessarily good, and the military situation for Frederick by mid-1620 would have looked surely worse, with the Spanish moving in his palatine as he was miles away in Bohemia, Freddy seems to have stayed strong. Indeed, perhaps the most endearing sources from this time are those between Frederick and his English wife Elizabeth. The correspondence presents the couple in a very human light and actually makes it difficult to cover the period objectively when it's abundantly clear how much the two loved each other. 
By March 1620, the two were celebrating the baptism of their fourth child and third son, Ruprecht. His name was an interesting choice, when you consider that the last Elector Palatine, to have been Holy Roman Emperor from 1400 to 1410, had also been named Ruprecht. By naming him so, Frederick surely was suggesting, if not his intentions, then at the very least his wish, to see the Habsburg control of the institution of Emperor overthrown. But the Habsburgs had been busy too. In March 1620 at Mulhausen, a meeting of the primary Protestant and Catholic princes of the Empire assembled, and exhorted Frederick in unison to abdicate. Although not present at the meeting, he would surely have gotten word of the ominous message that Ferdinand sent his way. Ferdinand warned Freddy that, if he did not relinquish his bohemian crown by June the 1st of that year, he would be branded an outlaw and have his lands and titles stripped from him. His position in the HRE's elector would be nullified, and all that he used to own would be up for grabs, as if a crusade had been called against him. Ferdinand acted on the advice of those closest to him, which irked those, such as John George of Saxony, who believed such a move against Freddy would only back him into a corner. According to the constitution of the HRE, one was meant to, as emperor, consult the other electors and support the ban by a vote. Ferdinand, however, did not pay heed to these norms, and he also ignored them again when he declared the election by the Bohemian Estates of Frederick V as their king in the first place also null and void. Frederick, as you can imagine, did not take Ferdinand's move seriously because he upheld that the emperor was not in his right to issue such a decree without empire-wide support. In his defence of his actions to the reps of the who's who in the HRE, Freddy stated that Ferdinand's actions up to this point amounted to a virtual abdication, so heinous and unconstitutional they had been. Additionally, Freddy stated, the Bohemians were well within their rights as citizens of the HRE to elect who they pleased, and the Letter of Majesty, which Ferdinand had promised to uphold, guaranteed this right. Freddy discounted the authority of the HRE's various councils, insisting that Bohemia possessed its own system of laws which superseded Ferdinand's judgement. Freddy believed essentially that the Bohemian affair was a private matter, to be settled between Bohemia and Ferdinand, and that Ferdy's allies, he was likely referring to Spain and Bavaria, had no stake in the matter. The constitution of the HRE, set down in the Golden Bull, had established that the electors of the Empire could hold the Emperor accountable. And yet, here was Ferdinand, Freddy claimed, judging him. All of these violations of the Empire's constitution, Freddy upheld in closing, were characteristics of an institution made sick by the prevailing influence, and now hereditary status, of the Habsburg dynasty. While Ferdinand charged Freddy with usurping his crown and breaking the Empire's peace, Freddy countercharged Ferdinand with disobeying the Letter of Majesty, spreading violence, and inviting foreign soldiers to violate Bohemia's integrity. Both men's charges held water, but the point is it didn't matter whether or not the HRE supported Ferdinand's actions as a whole. As we already examined, the very real deal already established between Max of Bavaria and Ferdinand meant that, either way, Max was going to assume Freddy's title and part of his lands. The unconstitutional nature of the agreement may be indisputable, but because of it, Ferdinand's goals and his cause could be realised. Max of Bavaria was on side with his wealth, his military leadership and his control of the Catholic League, with huge incentives in land and influence to be gained once he did his services to the Emperor. Frederick, by contrast, spent the year following his coronation grabbing at straws, all of which became increasingly less effective and harder to find. Frederick, having sent his distant relative Max a warmly worded plea to remain neutral and friendly, was in fact usurped and beaten to the punch by Ferdinand's offer to Max of lands and titles, and you can guess which offer won out. As early as December 1619, Maximilian had called together reps of the Catholic League and told them that he was gathering together a force of 25,000 to defend the Emperor's interests. Though he was its technical head, he remained something of a militarily inactive president. He left the commanding of the League, Army, to Count Tilly, 
a wise move, and it was this Tilly who would lead the Catholic League's forces in the rebellious Upper Austrian lands in the summer of 1620, crushing one of Freddy's few remaining allies in the process. Frederick's other key ally, Bethlen Gabor of Transylvania, had shocked Frederick by announcing to him and his allies in the estates of Hungary, Bohemia, Moravia, Upper and Lower Austria on January 5th, 1620, that he'd signed a peace agreement with Ferdinand to last till September 29th of that year. Because of his weaknesses, Frederick was forced to rely on the strength of his allies, but Gabor's disengagement from the general war is just another example of what Frederick's allies tended to do. Promise a lot, but in the end evacuate in time to save guarantees for their own safety. In Bethlen's case, the signing of the peace was made out of necessity. Years of campaigning against the Habsburgs had bled the small and relatively poor Principality of Transylvania dry by the beginning of 1620. While the money promised by Frederick that Bethlen required to support his huge costs was too slow in materialising. Ottoman Empire, who had sent reps to the siege of Vienna in late 1619, were now far too preoccupied with the wars against Persia and their own dynastic troubles to engage in Hungarian affairs as they had done in the years before. This was good news for Ferdinand, of course, because it meant that the additional distraction of an Ottoman war would not yet come to pass. But for Frederick, it meant that the best chance of capitalising upon the mortal antagonism between Habsburg and Ottoman could not be seized. Brennan Purcell provides the most detailed and fascinating points on Frederick's negotiations with the Ottomans. It's a bit of a long extract, but I'm sure that you won't mind, considering the fascinating nature of its contents. Purcell writes, quote, Both contending sides in the Bohemian War negotiated with the Turkish Sultan, but the reigning peace between him and the Emperor would turn the diplomatic contest to Ferdinand's favour. Emperor Ferdinand's ambassador in Istanbul, Baron Ludwig von Mallard, had encouraged the Ottoman regime to remain neutral or even take some serious action against Bethlen Gabor. Frederick, meanwhile, had sent an ambassador, Heinrich Pitter, to Istanbul in January 1620, accompanied by an emissary of the Hungarian estates, to counter the imperial negotiations. During his royal progress, Frederick had invited the estates in Moravia to advise him about making a gift to the Sultan in order to win his sympathy for a confederation of the Bohemians with Hungarians and Transylvanians. The plan had not been negotiated in secrecy. In Silesia, Frederick had asked the princes and estates to follow the lead of the Moravians in supporting an embassy bringing gifts to the Sultan Osman II to cajole his help against Ferdinand and his allies. In April, Bitter had a successful audience with the Sultan, who sent the ambassador back to Bohemia with an ambassador of his own, Mehmed Aga. When Aga reached Prague in July, he was received in state. He informed Frederick that the Sultan was prepared to grant him a force of 60,000 cavalry, and that there were plans to invade Poland with 400,000 men as a punishment for the Cossacks' invasion of Bohemia. Letters from the Sultan and the Grand Vizier, Ali Pasha, endorsed the actions of the estates against Ferdinand, and requested that Frederick maintain formal diplomatic relations with the Ottomans. Given the prospects of such enormous military assistance, Frederick of course complied. At the embassy's conclusion, Frederick sent one of his own to Istanbul to express his gracious thanks, his hopes for perpetual peace, good correspondence, friendship, and a guarantee of future deliveries of tribute but Frederick would never reap any advantage from these warm beginnings, and instead it would harm his reputation in the years to come. End quote. As the summer of 1620 came to an end, and news filtered into Prague about the Spanish march towards the Palatine, Frederick must have known that he could not war against his enemies on two fronts. So in his desperation, he called upon his familial ties. 
ties that had so convinced Christian of Anhalt previously in the guaranteed support for Frederick's bohemian adventure, but which now must have seemed to Freddy like a cruel joke. His relatives, distant in Denmark and the Netherlands, but close in England, seemed to speak out of both sides of their mouths when dealing with his reps. The Dutch, it was true, were just getting over the damaging experience of religious turmoil that had solidified the House of Orange as the state's ruling party, and now it set their sights on planning for the resumption of the Eighty Years' War in April 1621, when the Twelve Years' Truce with Spain was set to expire. The Danish king, whose sister was the wife of James of England, was equally hard to persuade, though his own opinion of the situation would come to force his hand in time. Seeing the unwillingness of the Danes to intervene, at least for the moment, and understanding that the Dutch were preparing for the coming war with the Spanish, Frederick placed all his hopes on his father-in-law across the Channel. But James I of England, who was also James VI of Scotland, had his own foreign policy plans. Having married his daughter Liz to Freddie in 1613, he had hoped to follow this up with a Spanish countermarriage with one of his sons. James's goal was to establish England and Scotland, or Britain as he believed they could one day become, as a united kingdom that would ensure the peace of Europe and prevent the destruction of it under a religious war. The last thing he wanted was to go to war against the Habsburgs, either in Spain or in the Holy Roman Empire, and he was thus placed in a difficult position when his son-in-law Freddy assumed the Bohemian crown and kicked over Ferdinand's carefully constructed apple cart. Though he certainly sympathised with Freddy's woes, James also seemed thoroughly peeved that the elector had acted so hastily in the first place, first exhorting him under any circumstances not to take the Bohemian crown, and then refusing to acknowledge his newly acquired titles when he did so. In support of his ventures for peace, James sent two new ambassadors to Europe in July 1620. These men went first to Duke Albert in the Spanish Netherlands to try and persuade him not to send the army of Flanders down to the Palatine, as this was rumoured to be the Spanish move in support of Ferdinand, and then the English reps turned their attention to John George of Saxony, who was appealed to to sit tight and uphold the peace of the empire. John George, though, much like Max of Bavaria, was by now under the sway of Ferdinand's promises, and had his sights set on Lusatia. Failing in their two objectives then, the reps then looked to Ferdinand himself. As Purcell explains, quote, Their commission directed them to bring Frederick into negotiations with the Emperor. But this too would prove a hopeless task, and the two soon returned to England empty-handed. End quote. Interestingly then, just as Louis XIII of France had tried to ensure peace in Europe, so had James I of England. Though the former's Treaty of Ulm ended the Evangelical Union's obligations to Frederick, save for their anemic defence of his palatine, James's diplomacy achieved little of any significance, except to persuade James himself that marriage was the only way to ensure European peace. He sought a marriage for his son and heir Charles with a Spanish princess, and this story would develop... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Over the coming years, Frederick lamented, as did those pro-Palatine members of James's court, that James was under the control of a Spanish party determined to isolate Frederick's cause in its darkest hour. At the end of August, Frederick was informed that Ambrosio Spignola, the Genoese general who had directed the campaigns against the Dutch so successfully, was now marching out of Brussels with an army of 25,000 men. His mission, Frederick was told, was to conquer his Palatinate. Brennan Purcell, whose account of Frederick's rise and fall provides the best and most detailed presentation of the elector's early days, noted that, quote, In August 1620, Spaniola and 25,000 soldiers from the Army of the Netherlands, bearing a commission from the Emperor, began their march from Brussels, and in early September they entered the Lower Palatinate, taking Kreuznach, Oppenheim, and the Bergstrasse district. The Union forces that had come to defend the Palatine failed to attack the Spanish forces, and simply withdrew from the stronghold at Oppenheim to Worms. Neither the English nor the Union forces would engage Spignolia's troops in serious battle during the autumn of 1620. By the end of November, the English volunteers had been quartered in the three main fortress towns of Mannheim, Heidelberg and Frankenthal, and the Spanish would also go into their winter quarters. End quote. While Spaniola was tearing his homeland apart, Frederick was also receiving almost daily reports from Christian of Anhalt about the rapidly deteriorating situation in Bohemia itself. Freddie did not even possess any army to send out into the empire, as Ferdinand was able to do, and this explains his reliance on his allies, even the less reliable allies like Bethlehem. While Ferdinand's ally was occupying the Palatine's attention, Ferdinand himself was ensuring that the forces of the Catholic League entered Bohemia. After subduing the rebellious Austrian estates, Tilly's League army moved to link up with Ferdinand's personal forces as October came to a close. By this stage, Frederick would already have been made aware of John George of Saxony's stance, as Lusatia and Upper Silesia were invaded as per the terms of his agreement with Ferdinand. Purcell notes that this act by the Saxon elector, quote, incensed Frederick, he quickly issued a proclamation that revoked all the fiefs that the Elector of Saxony held in Bohemia. Frederick angrily, and correctly, accused the Elector of acting in conjunction with the Catholic League and the Spanish. The gesture, however, did nothing to help the Bohemian cause. The combination of the Saxon invasion of Lusatia and the Bavarian and Habsburg invasion of Bohemia opened the war on two fronts, which quickly proved too much for the Bohemian army. End quote. Frederick's protest and appeals to John George were in vain, just as they were in vain to Max of Bavaria, because both had been paid off by Ferdinand, and they could both point to the constitutionality of their actions because of the ban that Ferdinand had placed upon Frederick. Even had he been aware of immediate military operations, Frederick was not a general, and he recognised this fact when he permitted others, such as Count Ernst of Manfield, to lead his forces. Frederick once complained to his wife, Time weighs extremely heavily upon me, not knowing how to pass the hours. Though my faith is strong, and I recommend everything to God, and I'm resolved to take everything in patience from his paternal hand. He has given it, he has deprived me of it, he can reward me, his name be glorified. But Liz was less resigned to the fate of their bohemian rule, writing in the last days of October of her fear in the defeat and for her own lives which Frederick thereafter admonished and reassured her for. He began to urge her to make the necessary preparations to leave Prague, not because he himself feared death, but because he feared for the safety of Liz and their family. But Frederick did not have time to prepare their escape. Tilly's army made for Prague and met the Bohemian army on the 5th of November. By the morning of the 8th, both armies had finished manoeuvring and the Bohemian forces under Christian of Anhalt set up a defensive position on the hill to the northwest of the city, 
a broad top hill known locally as White Mountain. While Frederick was dining with English ambassadors, he expected the battle itself to come days later, Max of Bavaria overruled Tilly and ordered that one strong attack at the Bohemian centre would shatter the entire rebel army. He proved to be correct. The Bohemians and their Protestant allies, some of whom had come as far as Hungary and Scotland, were cut off and surrounded by better trained and better equipped soldiers under expert command. When Christian had tried to rally his cavalry under his son's command, Christian II, Tilly simply ensured his own cavalry was there to answer the challenge, and the result was the routing of the Bohemians' entire cavalry force. This was soon noted by the infantry, who, after firing a token volley at an extreme distance, mounted a full-scale, disorganised retreat as a regiment of hussars pursued. The disintegration of the Bohemian army also meant the disintegration of Frederick's regime. As he rode on horseback towards the side of the battle, he met his own soldiers fleeing towards him. Frederick turned right around and made for Prague, and was so vexed and concerned at his family's lack of time to flee the city that they pretty much left all of their important possessions behind. Purcell notes that, quote, There was no time to make an orderly departure. In the chaos, they left behind the crown, scepter, and royal orb of Bohemia. Frederick's jewel-encrusted collar of the Order of the Garter, and, still worse, his chancery documents, including his secret Palatine-Bohemian correspondence with the Habsburg's various enemies. These, and other treasures, fell into Duke Maximilian's hands. End quote. His forces and regime in tatters, Frederick led his family away from Prague, and out of the kingdom he had once claimed to rule. He would not return eventually establishing his court in exile in The Hague in April 1621, following much shuffling through other German states, who simply couldn't afford to harbour the HRE's persona non grata while Ferdinand's allies marched. He travelled with his family and entourage from Moravia to Silesia to Brandenburg, before finally getting the message and ending up in the Netherlands. G. Pages cites an interesting tune which was doing the rounds in Germany following Frederick's defeat at White Mountain. Though since I have no idea of the tune, I'll read it to you like a poem. Oh, poor Winter King, what have you done? How could you steal the Emperor's crown? By pursuing your rebellion, now you do well to flee, your electoral lands and Bohemia. You will pay for your mistake with grief, and suffer mockery and shame. Oh, pious Emperor Ferdinand, grant him pardon. Do not hold his folly against him. He's a very young man, who did not realise beforehand how much a crown weighs. Now it is weighing very heavily on his head. If he had known, he would not have done what he did. I'm sure it sounds better in German, but regardless, Frederick had essentially lost the Bohemian crown. Though he would never relinquish it officially, his period of rule over Bohemia had effectively ended. One year and four days after he was crowned king in Prague. In a ceremony that promised so much for Bohemia, but which now placed the Bohemians even more than ever at the mercy of a victorious Ferdinand. Though he would certainly have preferred to go back to his homeland, the presence of the Spanish and the army of Flanders there proved too dangerous. And Frederick would remain for the rest of his life in The Hague, bar a few interruptions. His rule had lasted merely a year, and the battle to decide its fate had lasted barely an hour. But the implications of Frederick's actions, and then his defeat, were to be felt for the next three decades. The Bohemian Revolt was over, but the Thirty Years' War was just beginning. Baldassar de Zuniga was a complicated man. He had a complicated job and he possessed complicated goals. As the favourite of Philip III of Spain, he was in charge of Spain's foreign policy during the smooth early years of Spanish involvement in the Thirty Years' War. So high was Philip III's opinion of Zuniga that his son, Philip IV, adopted him as his favourite too. With such influence at his fingertips, Zuniga pressed for his nephew, Count Olivares, to take the reins of Spanish government as its Prime Minister. But Zuniga's responsibilities greatly troubled him. He knew full well that the very last thing Spain needed was war. 
Spain was, just like its Dutch enemy, close to breaking point by 1609, and this explains the leniency metered out to the Dutch in the course of those negotiations. That was 12 years ago, and in that time both enemies had found ways to prosper in the peace. But to Zuniga, it had barely seemed like a peace at all. Troubles in the Utica Cleave crisis that lasted from 1610 to 1614, and tensions in Italy drew consistent defence spending, while the settlement with the Austrian Habsburgs in the ONA Treaty of 1617 solidified the cooperation between the two branches of Europe's most active dynasty. Zuniga couldn't help but notice that, throughout the time it had been at peace with the Dutch, it was still just as stretched as before, and when those bohemian crazies threw loyal Habsburg agents out the window, a whole new problem emerged. This time, Cousin Ferdinand was in desperate need of assistance, and to stand idly by would surely spell disaster for the dynasty's European prospects. So, more spending was approved, plans for an Algerian crusade was postponed, reluctantly, by Philip III, and Spain threw itself into the task of aiding its troubled cousins. Zuniga, having taken the helm of Spanish foreign policy in 1618, knew that there was no alternative but to assist Ferdinand, and as Spanish soldiers escalated the situation, they also ensured Ferdinand's success. Once the army of Flanders marched into the Palatine, Frederick was brought to his wit's end, as his responsibility as elector or king of Bohemia were juxtaposed, though Frederick himself would prove powerless in the end to save either. The Spanish soldiers remained, however, and Philip III believed, just before he died, that by cutting down Frederick and taking up new positions, they had positioned Spain in the perfect place to bring the Dutch to heel once and for all. The truce with the Dutch had never been popular among the Spanish people. David Milland, in his book Europe at War, 1600-1650, explains that, quote, The truce had never been popular in Spain. It was attributed, unfairly, to the deficiencies of the Brussels administration, and was bitterly criticised from time to time in the consulta prepared for the king. Podcast footnote. Keep in mind the status of the Spanish Netherlands. At this time, just as the Twelve Years' Truce was nearing its end, it was ruled as a satellite state of Spain, under the control of Isabella and Albert, the former being the daughter of Philip II, the latter being the brother of Matthias and Rudolf who dominated our story for the past few episodes. Both the Archduke Albert and Princess Isabella recognised the need for peace in 1609, and recognised now that peace had seriously benefited the Spanish Netherlands, all the more so because the Dutch tore themselves apart in the Republic over religious quarrels. See episode 25.2 for more on that. End podcast footnote. Evidence of Dutch encroachment in the Mediterranean, West Indies and Far Eastern waters intensified the mood of general dissatisfaction, which was summed up in 1616 by the President of the Council of Finance. The peace is worse than if we had continued the war. In their exasperation, Spaniards tended to forget that the truce had recognised a condition of military stalemate and financial insolvency for which the peace had been the only remedy. Moreover, the fact that there was no money to spend on warfare in 1609 did not mean that during the truce the treasury could magically and on of itself begin to refill its coffers. Resentment at Spain's apparent inability to restore its reputation by major war was therefore redirected against the truce itself. End quote. Zuniga himself gave a grave account of the future prospects for success as early as April 1619 a full two years before the truce was due to expire. He stated, To those who put all blame for our troubles onto the truce, and foresee great benefits from breaking it, we can say for certain that whether we end it or not, we shall always be at a disadvantage. Affairs can get to a certain stage where every decision is taken for the worst, not through lack of good advice, but because the situation is so desperate that no remedy can conceivably be found. And yet, this was the best chance Spain had to crush the Dutch. Having moved in on important strategic bases in the Mediterranean, and with the full support of Ferdinand, who now owed Spain considerably, Zuniga knew full well that Ambrosio Spaniola was also fully prepared to war against the Dutch from his strengthened position, and he knew that the fortunes would not blow in their favour forever. 
A key issue to remember at this stage was just how shredded Spain's infrastructure and economic well-being had become after so many years of war. Philip II had been able to balance domestic affairs on the continent with a fortunate foreign policy, mostly, but his son had not been so lucky. The inherent illness present in the Spanish state is one declared by virtually all of my sources. There was a serious need on almost every level to reform Spain. Though the greatest power in the world now, the reasons for its ultimate collapse at the feet of France in 1659 can be sourced to events set in motion here, when a state's own policies stunned its internal growth, and when wars occur so consistently that an immediate gain in the form of attacks is upheld rather than badly needed reforms. Zuniga struggled with these realisations, as would his successor Olivares. Later, we'll see a mirror image of this situation in France with French Premier Richelieu understanding that war was the last thing his country needed, but was the only option it had. Philip III was informed, in the years leading up to his death in late March 1621, as to the impracticality of the truce for Portuguese trade and commerce. The Dutch, the Portuguese Council explained, were expanding their influence and reach and cutting off Portuguese interests as far afield as the Far East. The Dutch East India Company enjoyed a boon in fortunes, while the once great Portuguese empire had been reduced to a shell of its former splendour by a power that was supposed to be in a state of peace, yet acted under every circumstance to undermine its progress. The Portuguese lobby made a difference, as did the number of prominent ministers across the various European courts who exhorted their king to resume the war. These included Onate, responsible for the Onate Treaty, and Gondomar in London, who King James was said to answer to. The idea went that only by pressing the Dutch at home could they be persuaded to focus their resources on home defence, and thus pose less of a problem to Spain and its allies abroad. Zuniga put it plainly, if the republic of these rebels goes on as it is, we shall succeed in losing first the two Indies, then the rest of Flanders, then the states of Italy, and finally Spain itself. So came the declaration of the Spanish on Christmas Day 1619 of their intention not to renew the Twelve Years' Truce once it expired. The Dutch would have their war after all. Geoffrey Parker in his book The Thirty Years' War explains the thoughts of Don Carlos Coloma a commander of the army of Flanders. If in twelve years of peace the Dutch have undertaken and achieved all this, we can easily see what they will do if we give them more time. If the truce is continued, we shall condemn ourselves to suffer at once all the evils of peace and all the dangers of war. Parker himself then adds, quote, It was thus becoming clear that a major war would start in Europe in the spring of 1621 and most political observers knew it. The events of 1618 in Bohemia merely anticipated that general conflict, bringing together incipient but separate crises which had already polarised opinion in the Empire and in the Habsburg heartland. End quote. On April 21, 1621, the Eighty Years' War resumed, and with it came the almost complete nosedive of Dutch fortunes across the world. The resumption of the war began almost immediately with a full-scale increase in all Spanish naval activity in and around the Netherlands. Though the Dutch did enjoy naval supremacy in their own waters, the constant harassing by the Spanish meant that they had to employ convoys, which increased insurance costs and made the Dutch less competitive. A special tax was introduced on the Dutch merchants to pay for the new measures, and this proved highly unpopular. While the Spanish understanding of what made the Dutch tick such as the herring industry, where its primary fisheries operated, enabled Philip IV's government to inflict a damaging war at sea against Dutch interests. Embargoes on Dutch produce hurt Spain too, especially visible in the famine that was caused in Naples without the availability of Dutch grain. But additional apparatuses were established by the Spanish to ensure that the campaign against the Dutch was kept watertight. Cooperation was also made with the Polish king Sigismund, who also happened to have an interest in seeing Dutch influence in the Baltic wane. To counterbalance this, Sigismund's mortal enemy Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden pursued the war against his Polish enemy even more aggressively when he learned that he would not be able to lead a Protestant league similar to Max of Bavaria's in 1621, 
in a meeting that involved reps from all Protestant states. Whilst hurting at sea, Spaniel and his indefatigable army, they had just returned for the Palatinate, began their offensives and series of sieges designed to cut the Dutch off from their trade routes on land and isolate their strategic forts. Spain supported an army of 60,000 men in Flanders, while the Dutch were by this stage struggling to maintain the 48,000 men required to man the ring of forts that defended their lands. The Dutch also monetarily supported Ernst of Manfield whilst he cowered in their lands, and tried to brush up Christian of Brunswick with 15,000 Dutch-financed soldiers before his loss at Statlan in August 1623. Having chased Christian of Brunswick into his self-imposed exile in The Hague, Tilly and his victorious League army were poised to enter the Netherlands, link up with Spaniola and his army of Flanders, and perhaps spell the doom of the Republic. Thankfully for the Dutch, Tilly and his paymaster Maximilian of Bavaria was not officially at war with the Dutch, and Maximilian refused to allow a war to be opened up between the Dutch and the Austrian Habsburgs, lest this lead one day to his removal from the Palatine by an Anglo-Dutch force. Regardless, the Dutch nosedive in fortune seemed to coincide with a dramatic increase in Spanish prestige, and the best was yet to come for Spaniola. In mid-1624 he laid siege to Breda, a critical Dutch city of strategic, financial and moral importance. Eleven months later, Breda fell. Dutch morale plummeted to an all-time low, and Maurice of Orange died in April 1625. The war was made that much harder to pursue on a united Protestant front when on April 21, 1621, the Evangelical Union disbanded itself, freeing Spanish, Habsburg and Catholic ambition up across the lands. Brennan Purcell notes the bitterness espoused by the Protestant princes who believed firmly that they had been abandoned in their time of need by James of England. Quote, the Treaty of Mainz was signed on the 12th of April 1621 under the mediation of Landgrave Ludwig of Hessen-Darmstadt and the Elector of Mainz. King James's preference for a suspension of arms had only encouraged the Union's acceptance, and the members blamed England fully for the current crisis and their capitulation. In May, the Union formally dissolved itself at Heilbronn, leaving only the small detachments of British volunteers and the local Palatinate forces guarding the land. Spanish dominance over the area seemed unquestionable. End quote. We've already seen the Dutch losses, but the effect of this absence of a united Protestant bloc against the Habsburgs were clear to see also in the Palatinate. As the planned defence drained away year by year, and a tragic Frederick looked on. With only a few scattered forces to oppose them, the Habsburgs and their allies began to monopolise the military success over the next four years. The Palatine fell quickly to the combined weight of Spanish and Bavarian forces, though a brief resurgence under George Friedrich of Baden-Durlach and Mansfield combined forces led to a strategic Protestant victory at the Battle of Mingelsheim, 14 miles south of Heidelberg on the 27th of April 1622. Successive Protestant defeats for the remainder of 1622 backed first Ernst of Mansfield and then Christian of Brunswick, the next Protestant commander, tasked with saving the Protestant military cause, further into a corner. Late in 1622, Mannheim and Heidelberg, the latter of which was seen as the capital of Calvinism, fell to the Spanish. That year also, on the 25th of February, Ferdinand publicly transferred Freddy's electorate and titles to Max of Bavaria. Though objections to this action, from Count Onate and the electors of Saxony, Brandenburg and Mainz, ensured that the transfer would only be valid in Max's lifetime, and would not assume a hereditary state of permanence. Still, Frederick was absolutely furious, and sent further appeals to James for money to support his troops, who were now limping along under Mansfield's command with little prospect of success. Peace was now what James attempted to persuade Frederick to agree to, and he refused any more possibilities of monetary assistance. At the beginning of 1623, James had come to believe that Spanish control of the Palatine was better than Bavarian control over it, because James had been in contact with Philip IV of Spain, who had informed James of his intentions to restore Frederick by force if necessary to his former position, just so long as Freddie admit he had been wrong all along. 
but Frederick could not bring himself to make an about face. He firmly believed his cause was just and righteous, and that Ferdinand's excesses were to blame for the current situation. Frederick was at pains to emphasise the brutality exercised by the occupying troops of Heidelberg, and how the Habsburgs were attempting to really rid the empire of Protestantism once and for all. As we'll soon discover, this far-fetched boogeyman tale holds far more water in fact than perhaps any European statesman anticipated. Except of course, Ferdinand himself. Though he dabbled in thoughts of peace, Frederick had been plagued by the realisation that only through war would Ferdinand give any ground, and that the concessions which were required of him, that amounted to unconditional surrender, were never able to get off the ground because Frederick did not believe fundamentally in Ferdinand's ability to keep his side of the bargain. After the fall of his capital Heidelberg, Frederick further clung to the notion that more Protestant princes would join his cause against the Habsburgs in 1623. In fact, the lower Saxon circle of Protestant princes had voted to raise 18,000 troops to defend their lands at the end of 1622. This defence was put up, as Brennan Purcell explains, quote, against the rising tide of warfare that threatened to enter their borders. In January 1623, Frederick received word, after a silence of several months, from Christian IV, King of Denmark, who said that he would contact the Lower Saxon Circle and the electors of Brandenburg and Saxony to discuss ways to restore the peace. Christian said that James would come to realise that all negotiations were in vain, but the Danish king added that the best solution for the crisis was still Frederick's submission to the Emperor. End quote. Because the Lower Saxon Circle felt threatened, Christian of Denmark felt he had to intervene here to defend his primary interest in the region. The expanding interests of Christian of Denmark will occupy us heavily in the next episode, but for the moment it's interesting to note that Christian, like every other Protestant prince and relative of Frederick, wanted Frederick to just swallow his pride already and bow at Ferdinand's feet, so that Europe could get on with its affairs peacefully. Brennan Purcell's book, The Winter King, contains by far the most interesting and revealing account of this, especially between James and Frederick. It really is upsetting to me that I can't include their correspondence in full in this episode, but we obviously don't have time. Rest assured that if you find a way to get your hands on the book, you won't be disappointed. Purcell manages to take the characters present in the history, such as Frederick, and bring them out of the history so that they feel instantly more human. Perhaps it is because of Purcell's account of his life that I simply find turning wholly against Frederick so difficult. But it also enables me to forge my own historical opinions on the era. Certainly later on, you'll likely see Ferdinand as the real problem. Though I'm sure right now, Frederick appears incredibly annoying and blind to the circumstances of the time. His constant pleas to James really do great after a while. I can only imagine how sick of them James got, and he's the one who had to reply. We should remember though that James's attempts to persuade Freddy to see sense and make peace, however hard it may be for Frederick personally, have a lot to do with James's own ambitions, such as his desire to establish a Spanish match for his son Charles. It's important to remember too, that nobody wanted war in January 1623. Certainly not a general religious one for the sake of the Palatinate. What was at stake simply wasn't worth the costs involved. This war, which had begun as a mere defenestration, was now threatening to drag everyone else in Europe in because Frederick would not swallow his pride. Of course, it was not all that simple. The thing was, though, because of who Ferdinand was, pretty soon the issue will cease to be about the Palatine and will be about the idea of religious freedom within the Holy Roman Empire and perhaps even Europe itself. Frederick's ambitions would ultimately go up in smoke in the Battle of Stadlon on August 7, 1623, forcing him to finally sign a peace agreement on the 26th of that month. Interestingly, this move towards peace that James had campaigned so long for on Frederick's behalf and then to Frederick's face meant nothing here, because in a curious twist, the three-month period set down by which peace negotiations were to be conducted had by the end of August expired. This meant that, in order for the peace signed by Frederick to mean anything, an application would have to be remade to Ferdinand so that another round of peace negotiations would in fact be valid. James's plan for a Palatine peace was to be put on hold then, 
Just like in Madrid, where attempts to secure the Spanish marriage had been stalled by difficult negotiations and were now permanently discarded. James's ambitions to secure the match were based on the assurances from Philip IV of Spain that such a marriage would enable him to re-establish Frederick in the Palatine. But Charles wasn't so sure this was possible, and he remained sceptical, often proving to be the hardest bargainer of the English party in Madrid. He determined that, as Purcell notes, quote, there was no real possibility of fully restoring Frederick and Elizabeth by treaty. The Spanish, the prince found, despite their apparent wish to be compliant, would not take the necessary steps, and Frederick would never have consented to the terms of the imperial palatine match at any rate. The journey had been in vain. End quote. Purcell notes briefly here the planned imperial palatine match between Frederick V's son and a daughter of Ferdinand. This served as the apparent plan B that James at first put his support behind and then advised his son Charles to oppose on the grounds that its additional terms, such as the raising of Frederick's son in the Roman Catholic tradition and the placement of a six million Reichthaler debt on Freddy's Palatine, were far too extreme. Charles was instructed to leave Madrid. The journey had been in vain. And England and Spain here began their drift into opposite camps. But Charles didn't need that much persuading. He received word that his father was taken ill. It would not be the first time, but it would surely have reminded Charles that his succession can't have been far off. Charles had very different views on the international situation to his father, and England's shift following James's death would provide just another spoke in a wheel that was rolling towards a war nobody seemed to want, but that nobody appeared able to prevent. And that history, friends, is the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed my look at some of the lesser-known events of the Thirty Years' War before the real heavy hitters start to enter the scene. The first one of these heavy hitters, the Danes, will enter in the next episode, and I promise the space in between the episodes this time will not be as far apart. You have my word. So my name is Zach. And you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails' special on the Thirty Years' War, episode 25.4, It's really great to be back, and thanks very much for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.